You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, John. How you doing? Hi, Glenn. Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv, and patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show with John McWhorter, my conversation partner, bi-weekly. John's at Columbia. I'm at Brown, where the black guys at bloggingheads.tv. So... John, we were just reminiscing about all kinds of stuff. I want the world to know, if you don't mind, point of privilege, that uh, Harvard University Press is going to print a second edition of my 2002 book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, which were the Du Bois lectures that I gave uh, at Harvard in the year 2000. They're going to reprint it. It's become a classic, John. Two decades later, the press decides that they need to run off another hopefully many hundreds of thousands of copies of my book. <laughs> and uh, I'm in the throes right now of writing the preface, uh, a new preface and having to go into a whole lot of stuff, which is not necessarily what we want to talk about. But I do want to start out by patting myself on the back, because since you write so many books, at least they can reprint one of the ones that I wrote 20 years ago. <laughs> I'm still trying to keep up with your job. But that book was better than most of the ones that I've written. And I want to see it reprinted with that great preface because I love that book. Believe it or not, given how we felt about each other back then. I oh, that John, was, I never heard you say that. It was, <laughs> was a great book because, of course, you and I start out. Folks, sorry, I'm adjusting my microphone. The, you and I started out with certain tensions, 20 20 years ago, but that doesn't mean I hadn't read you for the 10 years before. And so, yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. I remember, I remember the tensions. Um, I, I became aware of you because of losing the race, which was published in 2000. That was your first big book mm -hmm. and uh, made you famous and everything. And you were, you were controversial. And I was in this period of my own political journey back and forth, left to right of moving from right to left and uh, found you in, uh, a, uh, a ripe target for mm -hmm. demonstrating my bona fides on the left by renouncing your apostasy, right? <laughs> I mean, I can remember in particular, uh, you know, you had your argument in losing the race. I won't try to recapitulate your argument, but uh, you, you were saying anti-intellectualism and you were saying... Uh, you know, look at the kids that you were teaching and, you know, and I was mad at you for using your kids as an example, your African-American students at Berkeley where you were teaching mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as an example of your thesis, a thesis which today I would give a lot more credit than I did at the time. But uh, it was it was cheap. These were cheap shots, man. These were uh, this was a little bit like me being mad at uh, uh, at Weasel Tear for giving Shelby Steele the uh, task of uh, uh, intellectual obituary for Ralph Ellison. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, that's way back. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That's, that's way back. That's in the 90s. But it's only a few years before losing uh, losing the race. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I was mad at him because, you know, Ralph Ellison was this uh, cultural icon of African-American, whatever. And how dare Weasel Tear arrogate to himself the prerogative of naming Shelby as the guy to pronounce in the New Republic about the meaning of Ralph Ellison's intellectual legacy. That really rubbed me the wrong way. That's where I was. And so some of that spilled over onto you. I apologize, John. Well, you know, it's um, it's really OK, because, as you know, losing the race was athletic 
publicly despised by a great many people. So by the time you and I met, I was <laughs> used to it. And you know what a lot of people hated about it was that I did do those anecdotes about students I had had. And that made a lot of people angry because they thought that what I was saying was, God damn these little idiots. And I can honestly say that if anybody goes back to the book, they'll see that I write about those people with maximal compassion. I did not hate them. I went to great pains to make it clear that I saw them as under the influence of something larger than themselves. But I thought it was important for somebody to write about actual experiences and events and to not pull any punches because I had been in a rather unique situation. I had been at UC Berkeley where I had had some situations where black students and white students were in pretty tight comparison, including I taught one class to almost all white kids once and almost all black kids another the year afterward. Very unusual. I wasn't trying, but these are things that happened to happen to me. And I saw some stuff and I wasn't making it up. It wasn't just anecdotes. And I wanted to get it out there because I thought we can't intelligently, this is going to relate to some other things we're going to talk about now. We can't intelligently discuss what to do about certain problems unless we really see what happens. And I'll say that to this day, I disguised the nature of those students very carefully because I didn't want anybody to be able to smoke out who I was talking about, but I'm not one for picking up my old books, but everything that I wrote in there, it was true. And I would invite anybody today to read those things because, you know, those students, I can't, I can't hate them for the things they were doing. I can put myself into their heads, but something was going on. It was cultural. It was not about racism. And I thought we needed to have a conversation. I'm not sure anybody ever did, but a lot uh, of people, people should know. I, I, if you don't mind, I just want to give a little bit more. Specific. I mean, you're talking about kids turning in papers late, kids coming in with excuses, kids not really engaging the work in an effective way and in a way maybe hiding behind their race as an excuse for not doing so. And in any case, not measuring up to the intellectual challenge, which was Berkeley. And that was, that was embarrassing that, 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 you know, nobody wanted to hear it. That was washing dirty linen in public. But I got to ask you a question if I can, mm-hmm. because you said on more than one occasion, and I was happy to hear you say it, that, you know, I influenced you early in your intellectual development because you ran across my pieces in the New Republic and elsewhere. And you thought, wow, this mm-hmm. is an interesting thinker. So I had some influence on you. And then you come along, you come into your own, you finish your PhD at Stanford in linguistics, you end up at Berkeley as an assistant professor and so on. And, and you write this big blockbuster book. And then this guy, that's me, who you had admired all these years and who perhaps even if I can say so might have inspired you to a certain degree ends up, you know, with this kind of dismissive, uh, you know, snarl, uh, in response to you joining the parade. What do you say? Athletically, uh, um, just. This- despising right yeah yeah as athletically just i mean here i am on the other side how did that make you feel well saying very briefly that um what i wrote about in losing the race was about uc berkeley doing good old-fashioned 80s 90s style racial preferences that is not the experience i have had with black students at columbia i want any one of them who are listening to this to hear that and anybody who's listening to me now and i'm not And I'm not hiding behind anything. It's not a Columbia Ivy League story. It's about Berkeley in the 1980s and 90s. Anyway, um, no, Glenn, it's interesting. I never thought of it that way because, yeah, I learned from you how to think like an intelligent black conservative as in that side of things, although I never thought of myself as being conservative. But you were able to stand outside. You didn't have that 
that tribal sense that a lot of black writers have that you're only supposed to say certain things because we're supposed to be so afraid of a white racist backlash. And then, and then you turn out to, to, to not like me. How did that feel? You know what? The truth is because in my linguistics, in my work on Creole languages, I have also been athletically despised. And that started, that started in about 1999. I had been yelled at by people from my views about ebonics in the classroom starting in 1996. I was used to that kind of feedback from people. So it didn't hurt because I was used to being yelled at. And when it came from you, you know, the honest truth is, the honest truth is, I'm not as arrogant as many people think. I write Losing the Race as a linguist who reads a lot of books about race. I write it. I frankly didn't think it was going to get around the way it did, but I knew I wasn't a sociologist. I knew I wasn't an economist. I knew I wasn't a historian. I knew that I'm a good talker and I don't bruise easily. And so I could get out there and represent it. But I knew that you had chops that I didn't have. And that even if I admired things you had written before, that you might think of me as this arrogant little person who comes in spouting off these statistics, but doesn't have the depth. I kind of got where you were coming from. Yeah, I, I don't remember thinking, oh, I'm so hurt that he doesn't. Um, here's what it here's what it is. I'm going to say this carefully because I really can't mess this up. This is how it felt. I could tell that you and I were kind of akin, even if there was that tension. I could feel you were paying attention to me, even if you were mad, you were looking. There is someone else who in my career I admired and kind of thought, wow, where I could tell that that individual was not looking at me, that individual looking way over my head. That gave me a pinprick. I kind of thought, hmm, I don't matter at all. That wasn't you. You were looking at me. I'll just leave it there. So. No, we wow. can't. We can't identify who it was. No, no, but... I, I wouldn't. Wouldn't presume so. Yeah. Uh, no, I was just taken at the um, significance of of what you had said, which was to be taken seriously in the context of the fierce debate that your book engendered uh, was more important than being agreed with. Yes. Yeah. The, or, I, the fact of disagreement was, was much less disturbing in light of the fact that you were taken seriously, and I and yeah. I and I think that's. I think you put your finger on something really important about argument, about the integrity of argument. Uh, if I'm not listening, I mean, if, if I'm dismissive, if, if I'm uh, ad hominem, if, if, I'm, if I'm responding to you because you are representative of something that I despise athletically, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, with, without even bothering to rebut your arguments, mm-hmm. you, you know, dismissive back of my hand. I mean, that's the unkindest cut. That hurts deeply uh, to a person who takes himself seriously. To be disagreed with because your interpretation of William Julius Wilson's uh, marriageable pool hypothesis doesn't take into account the data that have been gathered by the ethnographers and the whatever. That's at least an engagement. That That's at least, you know, like you say, I'm saying you're not a social scientist. I am a social scientist. That's mm-hmm. an ace over your king, man. <laughs> right. Like that. Right. But at least we're playing. At least we're at least we're trying exactly. to take each other seriously. Exactly. So, okay. Yeah, so that's what how how I felt. I could tell that you didn't think I was an idiot. 
Like you may have thought I was wrong, but you didn't think that I was utterly dismissible and utterly, you know, just had no sense at all. You just disagreed and thought I could have known more, but at least you saw me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that was okay with me. We're reminiscing here, uh, people about uh, 20 years ago when John and I first met and began to engage. And then it was another, what, eight years or so before we actually started doing this podcast after the publication of your book. When they asked um, me to do this with you, and this is 07, I thought we were still not liking each other. And so I first said, it'd be interesting to go through the emails. I said, are you sure you want me to do it with him? Because he doesn't like me. And they said, no, (laughs) he really he really wants it. And we started talking about it's been so long. It was about either Hillary or this new Obama person. And you weren't, you weren't into Obama the way I was. And somehow it became different. Remember back when blogging heads used to send somebody to your house to light you properly and stuff? You have to, you have to sit and wait at the door. That's how far back it goes. Blogging <laughs> heads had an unlimited budget in those days. <laughs> you have to wait for that guy. Mine was named Michael. And yeah. And so that's, but yeah, I thought we were never going to speak. Yeah, I thought we were just going to go our separate ways. You're the one who asked to talk to me, come to think of it. Do you remember why? No, I don't, to be honest with you. Although I I must have thought you would make, as you have done, (laughs) so splendidly for a stimulating interlocutor. So, uh, no, but I can't. I can't. It's all vague, man. Dang it. We're going back 12 years, more, 13 years. 14 years, yeah. 14 years. Goodness. So what are we talking about today, John? Uh, you well, this- let's yes, let's segue. No. Let's segue into Georgetown on this. Because okay, here, you should here take we the are. lead. You should take the lead because you've been writing about this. I wrote about it on my Substack, JohnMcWhorter.substack.com. Um, basically, a law professor at Georgetown was caught on Zoom talking to another law professor at Georgetown. These are older white professors, Sandra and- Sellers. And David, and David Batson. Batson. And Sandra Sellers is saying to David Batson that she um, is worried that there are so many black students that cluster at the bottom of the class semester after semester. She says that there are black students who are not like that, which, you know, I thought was a good thing for her to mention, especially given that she didn't know she was being listened to. It shows you that even white on white, there is at least etiquette there's an awareness of how you're supposed to look at these things but then she says that you know the the students cluster at the bottom semester after semester and she rolls her eyes and she says she doesn't know what to do about it and she seems kind of impatient about it it's unfiltered you feel like maybe you know she had had half a glass of beer or something like that i don't mean intoxicated but she's speaking very freely she doesn't know anybody's watching and so um that got her fired She offered to resign as well, but she was fired for the simple reason that for her to say that thing is racist. That's the idea. And a great many people seem to think that it's utterly incontrovertible that that is racist. And that brings us to, Glenn, something that's happened on your show, which was in, was it in 2018 with Professor Amy Wax? Yeah, it might have been 17. It was a few years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. Amy, I just want to give the fact that... um, uh, Sandra Sellers was speaking to David Batson after they had done a Zoom recorded class uh, on negotiation at the Georgetown Law School. And they carried on their conversation. 
and the the uh, recording uh, protocol captured their post-class discussion, which was then disseminated to students made available to them because the lecture was recorded for the purpose of students viewing it later. And hence this scene that you described went out to the entire class community uh, and it engendered a firestorm at Georgetown. The Black Student uh, Loss uh, Association there at Georgetown organized the letter. The letter is 35 pages long or so, three pages of text, and 32 pages or so of signatures of uh, people in the Georgetown community and throughout the legal academy in the United States of America who demanded that uh, Sandra Sellers be uh, terminated and that uh, David Batson be disciplined for... He's um, on leave, right. Uh, he is. Be. I think he's resigned. But now, John, I think that's the news this morning. I'm not surprised. Uh, but he was uh, uh, a bystander who failed to act because he just nods. Right. So yes. it wasn't just racism. A crime was being committed, and he was at the scene of the crime, and he failed to to rebut or discipline the expression of of racism. So anyway, I, I wanted to, and you say this uh, is reminiscent of the brouhaha around Amy Wax, University of Pennsylvania Law School who on this show uh, some years ago reported that um, she rarely saw an African-American student at the top of the class, top quarter, I think she might have said, or maybe even top half and especially rarely in the top quarter of the students that she taught at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, which precipitated a similar firestorm of people demanding, of course, they demanded that she be fired, but she's a tenured professor, unlike these adjuncts. She couldn't simply be peremptorily dismissed, uh, but she was barred from the teaching of required courses in the first year of the curriculum at the law school at the University of Pennsylvania. And that exclusion continues to this day, her dean uh, having decided that she was no longer suitable uh, to teach in any course that a student would be required to take uh, at the law school. She chafes at that uh, even to this day. These are similar situations. But and I think it it also yes. bears men- mentioning that um, some students at Georgetown have said that um, part of the problem with Sellers class was that a quarter of it, the quarter of the grading was done on the basis of participation and that black students, or at least a critical mass of black students, were uncomfortable participating because of Sellers racism. And the question is, how did she display this racism in the classroom. So the idea is that maybe the reason that students cluster at the bottom is somehow because of racist discrimination against them or some kind of racist element in class discussion that makes it impossible for all but a few black students to perform at the level that they otherwise would. Now, the problem is we don't hear what this racism consisted of it's just assumed that it was there because black students say it's there and it's considered um it's considered untoward to ask what was it Uh, or you know if somebody gives half a sentence or rolls their eyes that's supposed to constitute an answer i would like to know what this racism is but i don't think we're going to get an answer to that question but that's something that people have said and they said that about amy wax too that she shouldn't be able to teach classes like that because her racism will make it impossible for black students to perform the question is how, how does this racism manifest itself and i don't know 
Well, let me try and answer. It manifests itself in your willingness to utter certain sentences out loud. Like, in my experience, the Black students on the whole cluster near the bottom of my class. You uttered that sentence, that act of uttering that sentence, thinking that thought, of finding it uh, noteworthy, of being willing to express it to others, is ipso facto racism. What's wrong with that? Okay. Don't, so- don't you know how damaging that is? Uttering a sentence of that sort? Don't you understand what you're hurting? Don't you know who else is saying sentences like that? Eugenicists and racists and uh, those who oppose affirmative action, uh, conservatives, Trump voters, and so on. Um, what do you mean? Is it racist? Saying that black students are stupid is not racist. That's what you said in so many words. <laughs> that was good because I really think that that fairly represents the response. And I think a great many of us are asking if it's a fact. I mean, if you can't say that it's not a fact, and I remember certain sputtering attempts to claim that what Amy Wax said wasn't a fact, but if it's a fact, what is unethical about pointing out the existence of the fact. This idea that it's racist is very complicated because, of course, when a person points it out, generally, the reason they're pointing it out is because they're saying that we need to do something to fix this. They may not utter that exact sentence afterward, but you can find it from context. I openly say I know Amy Wax. I talked to her about this, and that is what she meant. She was saying we need to be able to have a conversation about it. She didn't specify what the conversation would be. But in terms of Sandra Sellers, I think we can definitely say that she was saying this is a problem. She wasn't saying these black students are just so stupid. Now, there's context involved. You could pretend to think that what she really meant was the black students are just so stupid. You could propose it but you'd be rather willfully numbing yourself to the fact that human interchange is based deeply in context. You can't just take isolated sentences and put them up into the sky. You have to think about what people mean when they're speaking to one another. And what most people are saying is this is a problem, but instead it's just thought of it's racist to say it. And the only explanation I can think of is that people are thinking, Don't you know, dummy, that the reason black students cluster at the bottom of the class is because of systemic racism, I suppose. And then the question is, in what sense, which kinds of racism are creating this clustering at the bottom of the class? And when you ask that, you're considered to be some sort of naive, pedantic, obnoxious jackass. You're not supposed to question that closely, which means something's wrong here. Yeah, I think you have your finger on the issue, which is... If you merely report racial difference in performance without an appropriate explanatory context, then you're committing the racist act. You're, if you don't invoke all of the chain of history and of microaggression and of implicit bias and of, you know, uh, uh, whatever, the systemic racism uh, stuff, as an account You simply state the fact of the difference in performance, but you don't provide the contextual account, uh, then, then, uh, then it's deeply problematic. But you're also right, um, that people never or almost never get down to cases. They rather repair to a kind of generic atmospheric invocation, systemic racism, white supremacy. These are just we're all supposed to know what they're talking about and they're supposed to permeate everything 
so it's in a way no explanation at all. It's, it's it's something that explains everything and hence doesn't really give you any traction about anything in particular. And what people are really after, of course, is not an argument. They're not after cause and effect. Rather, they're after a sentiment. They're they're after inducing you to join with them in a way of being in the world, a, a, a way of being black in the world, a way of thinking about racial justice in the world. So they're not making cause and effect arguments. I mean, they're very, very thin. Uh, the disparity in observed performance, we're talking about speaking and writing, about legal analysis. Okay, it's a real thing. Cause and effect, inferring the structure of an argument from a text. Uh, being able to make deductions and inferences based upon a fact situation, being able to see contrasting relative importance of different assumptions to the validity or the weight of an argument that's being made. That's what we're talking about. Being able to see the point of the opinion and be able to compare it to other opinions and how it is similar and how it is different so that you can make a judgment about whether or not the appellate court properly, et cetera. We're talking about the law. It's not nothing. It's a, it's a specific thing. So, you know, people are making these gestures about, well, uh, you know, uh, it, it's an inhospitable environment. I, I saw, a, 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 I can't remember his name now, and I'll stop. I won't go on for very long about this. I saw a law professor at the Howard University Law School, an African-American, on Roland Martin's podcast saying, and you would relate to this, it's about language that the legal educational pedagogy is about language and that African-Americans come with a different linguistic orientation. Such oh, that, Jesus fuck. Such that notwithstanding the fact that they may actually get it, the interpretation of their written response will be that they don't get it because you read them through, you don't really see that they're using the language in a way that African-Americans would use it. The inference was, of course, at Howard Law School, where we're mostly African-Americans, we would understand better uh, the qualities of our students. But, it, but it's basically denying that there is a racial difference in the intellectual performance of the students. That's what Amy Wax reported some years ago. That's what Sandra Sellers was complaining about or was concerned about. You mean that remarks. black students perform at a lower level? Yeah, that that they perform at a lower level, or it's saying I want to save you from something because people are going to spend so much time. You said racial difference. There are people out there waiting to pretend that you meant an IQ difference. I just want to clarify that that's not what you meant. Go ahead. No, it's not what I meant. I meant a difference in how well they answer the question or do the test. I mean, it could be right. IQ, but I'm not saying that it's IQ. I don't think that it's IQ. If I need to say that, but you, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, have you looked at the, you have looked because in your Substack piece, you cite the statistics that Richard Sander collects in his uh, careful statistical analysis of the law school admissions consoles data from uh, the 1990s about these thousands of uh, legal app, uh, uh, legal scholarship applications that, uh, and then he tracks these kids about how well they do after they get in and they're clustered. 163 the law schools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because the LSAT performance is so different between the racial populations, not every individual, but on the average. And I went and looked at the LSAT, man. I, I just Googled LSAT sample questions and I got 10 questions from the LSAT and they're all, uh, they're, <laughs> they're certainly not culturally biased. They're all questions like, here's an argument. What are the guts of it? Basically. Mm -hmm. 
you know, five sentence, eight sentence, a paragraph. Here's an argument. How does it work? How does that argument work? What does it assume? What does it imply? What would be supporting evidence for it? They're all like that. They're mm-hmm. analytical reasoning exercises. You mm-hmm. can't tell me that that's not related to being able to write a brief or parse an opinion or argue a case. I, I, you can't, you can't tell me that the skills that are being talked about here are not real things. Uh, so the, the, the underlying reality here is that at some of the best law schools in this country, there is a substantial number of African American students who are dis- performing in a discernibly inadequate manner in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That, that is either a true or a false statement. The evidence that we have at hand suggests to us that it probably is true. It's a consequence of affirmative action in law school admissions. And we have to decide, I guess we have decided we're going to live with it, that we're just going to live. I guess what we haven't decided is whether we're going to lie about it or not. Yeah, it's, um, and you know, as to the degree of racism, for the person on Roland's podcast who said that it's about how people interpret black language, that's gorgeous music. But unless this person can write a careful presentation of about 10 ways in which a black person's quote unquote use of language in legal work, you know, legal, educational, scholastic work can be misinterpreted when, in fact, they are exhibiting the same caliber of reasoning as some white kid who's addressing the same subject. Unless that's shown, then that is an utterly worthless argument. You can't toss off a sentence and a half on some podcast and and, and pretend to think that you've made an impregnable case. And I'm not convinced. And I also know that these days, let's think about the sort of racism that black law students are on record as attesting to. And so we have this University of Illinois in Chicago case where N asterisk, 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 asterisk is on an exam question. And a certain group of black law students are so appalled to see even that euphemized word on the exam that they seek to essentially destroy Professor Jason Kilborn's life. You know, one of them claiming that they had heart palpitations, et cetera. Is that the racism that these people are encountering? Because that racism is invalid. If they can't stand to look at that, what they need is very careful and loving psychiatric counseling. They're faking it. And so basically... The question is, is the racism that these people are encountering day to day, you walk across the campus, you go somewhere, you get a soda, you do some emails, you're sitting out on a bench, you have a passing exchange with a professor, you know, the the, the sum of what life is. Is it really so racist that we couldn't expect you to engage in the close reasoning about often rather anodyne topics that legal training consists of? And what you're mentioning, which is that what the LSAT is about is about basically just, you know, close reasoning about topics of a certain abstraction. It's not about you as a person. It's not about identity. It's not about feelings. It's not about attestation. You just have to basically do the math. There are an awful lot of black students who have not been given that experience in any really serious way, especially with the way modern universities often encourage students to explore themselves in their work rather than just do work, especially if they're not in STEM subjects. For all sorts of reasons, that sort of thing can throw a black student. It can throw a student from various kinds of backgrounds, not all black students, but a lot of them. But the main thing is that, yes, 
there's a certain kind of performance that's expected on the LSAT. There's nothing biased about it. They're not asking you what wine goes with chicken. They're not talking about skiing. It's just sit there and answer the questions. And if there is a performance gap, then one, there are reasons for it that have nothing to do with anybody's IQ. But two, the question is, do you place black students in schools where the school is going to teach faster and on a higher level than anything that they're likely to excel in out of a sense that their diverse presence somehow is more important than whether or not they're truly prepared to excel at that school. Because a lot of the administrators who think that the pretend to think that the diversity is more important need to consider that this is what happens. What actually happens is that these students are extremely uncomfortable for reasons that all of us would be. And as a result, you get fake protests like this or useless protests like this, empty claims that it is racist to point out the discrepancy, which is a fact in which everybody knows, when really there is evidence based on Sanders' work, which has not been refuted to my knowledge. You know, people are still writing against him to this day, 10 minutes ago. I read something against him every couple of years. I've never seen a deep six. And also the work of, you know, Peter Archidiakono better than I do, but the Duke University economist who has written about the mismatch, where it's not a matter of just saying black students don't do well. If that's all it was, I would I would find something else to say. The issue is if you take students like that and you put them in solid second tier, maybe even sometimes third tier schools, they do better and they go out into the world and make careers faster and better. That's what the evidence says. But in our current climate, we're supposed to ignore and resist what studies like this say and instead sniff out ways of telling people that they're racists because that's more important, because that's a higher kind of wisdom. But it ends up leaving black students who deserve better in the dust, insecure, in universities where, frankly, they're underqualified, just as legions of white and Asian students are, who therefore were not admitted to those universities. It harms black people in the name of the charisma of running around deciding who's a racist and who isn't. It's utterly disgusting. And yet it's been frozen for about 20 years. Yeah, I, I want to push back a little bit, John. Uh, I'm very sympathetic to what you said, but I, I, I think some of the stuff is not as clear cut. Uh, Arcia DeCano calls it the quality fit trade-off. You're talking about the mismatch problem, which originated with Richard Sander. Uh, he and Stuart Taylor had a book about it, but Sander did the groundbreaking research in the early night of uh, data based on data from the early nineties. I think the paper is from the early aughts or the late nineties. But in any case, the, the, uh, the thing is kids can match the schools. The tougher is the competition at the school, the less good it is for a kid if the kid is not up to the competition. On the other hand, going to a good school, a Stanford instead of a, you know, Davis, a UC Davis going, you know, going to a better school is valuable in the marketplace. So there's a trade off. You might be less likely if you're a black kid and you're mismatched at a Stanford instead of a, a, a UC Davis. You might be less likely to finish the course or to uh, pass the bar when you finish with Sanders fines. But should you finish and pass the bar, you might be more valuable in the marketplace with a Stanford degree than a Davis degree. You got to put some value on that. And then it's an empirical question of the relative weights of these two different things. And you can imagine arguments about that empirical assessment. Those arguments don't refute the mismatch effect as much as they say it might be worth it, even though we know it's there, that kind of. Arcia DeCano is finding that at Duke, kids who come in with uh, black kids uh, with relatively modest performance on the 
admissions exams tend to drop out of the STEM fields and switch back into softer disciplines. And But if you compare like with like, black and white kids who have the same test scores coming in, there's no real difference in uh, the likelihood of them dropping out. Exactly. So, yeah. so, so that, so that's all going on there, but, but I, I wanted to back up. I wanted to back up a bit because there are people who are going to a deny the existence. You say, everybody knows it. You and I know it, but not everybody knows it. They're going to deny the, ex- the, the existence of the difference in the first place. Do you know, as I read Georgetown law is going to uh, 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 monitor or uh, uh, take a look at past grading by Sandra Sellers because of the presumption that she might have been biased against kids of color in the past. And so they want an audit of the history of her grading. Mm -hmm. So the suspicion of racial bias in grading Mm -hmm. has been raised. Uh, On that Roland Martin podcast that I was telling you about, another uh, uh, set of facts that were put forward, if you want to call them facts, was that implicit bias experiments have found that when you take a paper, the same paper, and you put it before the professor, and the professor is cued that the student is white or black, you get a different evaluation. They give a lower grade. They find more spelling errors if if they're told that the student Mm -hmm. is black. Uh, and that's taken as evidence of the fact that what would appear to be a difference in the mm-hmm. qualification is, in fact, a reflection of and, racism. And people even go, let me just finish so far as to say, even if you are right that the performance is different, the failure is not that the students come in unequal to the task, but that the pedagogy is not well adapted to meeting them where they are and bringing forth their full potential. So no matter which way you turn, (laughs) either you're denying the difference or to the extent that you're acceding to its existence, you are attributing the cause of it to factors other than the ill preparation of the student. You know, that's interesting because this is another one of those things where you're supposed to resist your natural impulses. And of course, part of being an engaged person is that you don't just give right in to any little intuition you might have. But in this case, That intuition is correct, which is that stereotype threat, the idea that existing under the stereotype can lessen the quality of your performance. That has been proven to be a thing that's now 35 years old. That's Shelby Steele's brother, Claude. It's one of the initiators of that whole idea. And it's true. And when somebody hears what you just said, they think, okay, that is certainly a factor. But is it enough to explain the particular disparity that we're talking about? Anybody would think it in this this case. I am aware of evidence that, yes, that kind of implicit bias is is there, but it doesn't explain the degree of divergence between, I hate to say, white, Asian, slash, and black performance here. And actually, Richard Sander demonstrated it because Sander um, had his paper, and then there was a very interesting issue of the Stanford Law Review where they had really good people responding. You don't need, even need to wonder how they all felt about what he what he did. And then Sander does a repost, repost, I'm going to stop using that word because I don't know how to say it, but whatever that is. And he does it. And frankly, he leaves them all a smoking ruin, including that argument about the stereotype threat, which was the most prominent of the rebuttals, the one that got around the most. It just doesn't explain the degree of the gap. And you know, Glenn, it's, it's interesting. Talk about going back. I remember when I first got a sense that there was something a little off about this idea of campuses 
being racist. And it's been long enough now that I'm, I think I can tell it. This is over 30 years ago when I went to Stanford as a grad student. I, for reasons that need not bore us, spent the first year living in a law school dormitory. I didn't do well in the housing lottery, so I didn't get a nicer dorm and I didn't live off campus because I didn't have a car. See how boring that is? But that meant that I spent 88, 89 living in a law school dormitory. And so you're in a dormitory, you get to know people. I ate with some of them. I had an eating plan. So I would eat with these law students. You're in there. You get to know them. There were like a hundred law students at Stanford University made friends with some of them. They were of all colors. And so for a year, and then of course, I knew these people socially, and so I knew some of them for the next two years that they were at the school. Still know some of them on Facebook with some, some of them who are black. I knew, and I didn't go to class with them, but I hung around with them. I ate with them, went out with them, drank with them. So I was kind of like I had half of a foot in Stanford's law school for definitely that first year. And yet I know that there was some sort of black day. There was some sort of black Stanford law alumni day. This was probably in 8990. And various black Stanford Law School alums came of various ages, you know, ones who are now graying, who were, you know, their early classes, et cetera. I forget why I was there for for the afternoon of this. I one of friends with a lot of them, so I was sitting there. So I didn't really have much to say because it wasn't my place. But I remember the conversations that the ones my age were having with the old heads. And there was this just presumption that there was a problem. Like the old heads were saying, well, we wrote a letter to the dean complaining that blah, blah, blah. And you can imagine that in 1971, there would have been some real problems. You know, the Stanford Law School faculty, most of them probably by our standards were racists. They were, they were bred in the early 20th century. But here we were in 1990. And I knew what these students' lives were like. I knew the classes that are full of diversity, this and diversity, that. And I couldn't help thinking, why are you so upset? You know, there was a good contingent, not all of them, but there was a good contingent of black Stanford law students then who thought this is a racist institution. It's a racist law school. And I remember thinking, where is the racism? What are you talking about? And I thought there must be some things that happen in the classrooms that I'm not seeing because that's where I never was. But whenever I would kind of try to get it out of them, what? What are you so angry about here in 1990 on this resort of a campus where the sun is shining 27 hours a day and there's diversity this and diversity that, which is, you know, there to catch you when you fall? What are you so angry about? And Glenn, I can tell you, I never got a coherent answer. And that was when I'm done. That was when I thought this is a posture. This is something that gives them a certain sense of validation. It's not based on something happening to them. I think you're wrong about that, actually, John, although. It, there is posing and theatrics going on. No, I'm, I'm remembering Derek Bell resigning his tenured chair at the Harvard Law School because the law school had yet to appoint a tenured black female professor mm. to its faculty. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, that was said to be a reflection of the institutional racism of the law school. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's all that different from one of these Stanford law students going to a contracts class and having a law and economics type professor, you know, mm-hmm. the ones that wear the bow ties and have the crew cuts in mm-hmm. 1991, get up there and make some abstract argument about property rights, which trump somebody's identitarian claim and them in the classroom feeling that they were having a neoliberal uh, racist uh, segregation supporting ideology foisted on them because somebody had a, questioned uh, whether or not um, you needed affirmative action in electoral uh, districts being drawn Mm -hmm. for political representation, had made arguments about 
the uh, implications of affirmative action in uh, admissions like Richard Sander uh, mm-hmm. might have made, uh, had, you know, uh, et cetera. The criminal law where the rubber meets the road, mass incarceration is taking off like a rocket. You got law professors defending cops saying that you don't need to quit on the flimsiest of saying that testimony should be admitted, even though the circumstances under which it was acquired uh, might have uh, violated somebody's right because of whatever. Sure, they had plenty. If Derek Bell could throw a fit because a black woman had not been made a tenured professor of the law school, when there are perfectly sound arguments about why you may or may not want to attend to the sex and the race of a law professor to be appointed. But it's so widely shared as an assumption that that uh, question of a black woman representation on the faculty was a fundamental issue of of justice and of the school meeting. I mean, this is what people were thinking. This is what people still think. So, so they will understand it as racism. You and I might not understand it as racism. I looked at some of the Twitter chatter from the law students, the black law students at George, at uh, Georgetown in the aftermath of this incident. They're saying, I'll never recruit another black student to come to this racist institution to study. They're saying things like that that they feel like they're doing service to the uh, Georgetown by when they have their recruiting fair, because the African-American students whose LSATs may not be as high as the Asian students' LSATs, but are high, are sought after by all the law schools in the country. So the Georgetown black law student who's an incumbent regards themselves as doing a favor to the institution by trying to persuade other blacks to come there, because if they don't go to Georgetown, they could go to Northwestern. And if they didn't go to Northwestern, they could go to Yale. And if they didn't go to Yale, et cetera. And they're declaring now contra institutional loyalty. I'll be damned if I try to get another black person to come here to this racist law school. You think they don't really think the school is racist? They've been made to feel uncomfortable. The school has faculty members. And and what are they saying? Excuse me, John. What are they saying? They're saying if they talk like this when the recorder is running, what do you think they say when the recorder is not running? Well, what they say is what's actually their experience, which is that y'all are not pulling your weight in the classroom. That's what they say. You're jogging my memory. Because, yeah, that is that was one of the issues circa 1990 especially that there was a cadre of white, mostly male, hardcore Republican students, and they would express their views. They were in love with Reagan, et cetera. I knew some of them too. They were interesting because I ate with them. There was a small group who ate, and they were for some reason overrepresented among the people who ate in the dining hall across the street. I learned from them that Republicans are human because listening to them talk every night and they actually like Ronald Reagan. I remember thinking some of these guys actually can make sense. Like I can see that it's, it's that ideologies can differ and yet be morally legitimate. It was a very valuable experience, but there were them. There were people who felt it wasn't only black people, but that if one of those guys sounded off in class, it had been a racist class that it, they, they were experiencing racism by about. hearing this defendant. And, you know, I get where those students come from, but I think it, it sounds atherosclerotic to me, this notion that 
It's rate that there are certain views which are just so unquestionable that for anybody to say anything else is racist. That is not, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a little bit of Glenn. That's not thinking. Those students were misled, and it goes that far back. They were children of Stokely Carmichael into thinking that they are thinking in learning what views to reject out of hand, that that's thinking. No, that's not thinking. But they didn't know that, and nobody was going to tell them that. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. It's a racist institution because there's a federalist society and such and such yesterday was in class defending John Tower. Yeah. The idea was this is a racist institution. I I know what they mean, but I don't get it. And that is clearly what their heirs are now doing at Georgetown. By the way, let me just note Hmm. the stakes here are very high because the modern day instantiation of that is they're defending capitalism and therefore they're racist. Oh, yeah, right. They're defending heteronormativity, and therefore they're bigots. They're defending the family, and therefore they're they're defending faith, and therefore they are uh, beyond the pale. In other words, this sphere of argument, or the lack thereof, where people feel that it's enough simply to be in an identitarian kind of move, dismisses with someone if they hold those views, if they're pro-life. You know what I'm saying? If they're pro-cop, uh, has expanded so that it includes climate. It, it includes, what's your view about the U.S. military? There is a script here about what a decent person without argument, without the need to actually justify belief, should affirm. And what views we have not to take seriously. And it is capacious, the script. It covers an awful lot of ground. The threat here is to reason deliberation about public life altogether. Glenn, should we, we as people who just don't get this, who have this mental disease of being able to think about things from an objective distance. Should we just leave these institutions to these people? (laughs) Or would they then want more space? Should we just let universities become churches of the elect and just let them be that way and let them teach each other these things? No, no, because we're talking about there being a completely bifurcated society. That capitulation can't happen. There's a part of me that wants to just give them their own country. And I'm not talking about black people. I'm talking about every, everybody who's allied with this way of thinking these days. Because but you can't surrender you the universities. You, are you going to let the physics department go down? Or, or what about the people who studied the French Revolution? Uh, what about the classics? Did you see that big spread uh, a few weeks ago about this African-American guy? Very dismissive of the traditional approach to uh, classical Mr. studies. Professor Don Peralta. Yes, he's that's at, right. He's at Princeton. Yeah. He, he, you know, mm-hmm. he has a story uh, from Dominican Republic where his parents are, et cetera. Uh, mm-hmm. No, I think he's from actually, because I think he was undocumented at least at one point. That's what um, he said. Yeah. But, but anyway, let's not get sidetracked. Um, uh, you want to give the universities over to the zealots 
and simply what strike out on our own somehow, not you and me personally, but you know, uh, start, like start us a, would- a, a, a non-woke academy somewhere where, you know, sort of go massive online courses and, and try to, we you know, couldn't, we couldn't get PhDs though. It would have yeah. to be a whole different conception of, of, it would have to be this whole different intelligentsia where the PhD was just left to the, to, to the elect. And yeah, you go online and, and and maybe funders, but I mean, who would they be? Would you know give buildings and campuses and people without what's called accreditation? You have to invent some equivalent. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, John. I was just going yeah, to say accreditation to, would well, be no, the bar. No, I'm, think, I'm thinking of right, right. They're going to call you fly by night. They're going to say you're like Trump. They're going to say you're like Trump University. That you're phony. That you're you're not an authentic. You know, your credential will be worth nothing, and if you take money for it, you'll be a, a huckster. It'll be a grift, you know. You you need the imprimatur. Yeah, there can the, only be one accreditation body. Yeah. So, what about tenure? You <laughs> this want to sounds talk about like that? this Department of Anti Racism that a certain that a certain somebody has tried to institute. Yeah, I'm thinking off the top of my head, just trying to think of a way of dealing with this that doesn't involve the fiction that you can actually get across to somebody who's gone too far into this kind of belief, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. Uh, you want to talk Should about, we talk about tenure? Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. Um, you mean like somebody who <laughs> wasn't uh, granted it by a certain the subject. I'll introduce the subject and then you can hold for it. <laughs> yes. So the subject here is one yeah. Cornell West professor of the practice of public philosophy at Harvard University in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and in the school, the, the Divinity School at Harvard. Um, and a brouhaha was, has emerged and uh, West has announced that he's leaving Harvard and moving to the Union Theological Seminary where he has previously been on the faculty. This will be his second time leaving Harvard in a snit, uh, with a very public expression of his disappointment that the university doesn't appreciate, uh, his gifts and, and, and his contribution. Uh, he will not be disrespected, says Cornell West. Uh, he has options and he's exercising his option to leave Harvard. Now, um, not to go into the previous incidents of his leaving where there was a spat with then president of Harvard, Lawrence Summers, who apparently had reprimanded or in, in some way spoken, uh, harshly to West about West's responsibilities not being fully his, what we had expected of him as a university of professor of Harvard not being fully delivered. West took umbrage at that. It became public. He left Harvard. He moved to Princeton at that time. This time he's going to Union Theological Seminary. Now, here's how I understand the facts. You correct me if I say something that's wrong. West was in a non-tenured, renewable professor of practice slot. He came up for review. Periodically, the contract has to be renewed. A committee has to be impaneled to review his fitness for the renewal of his contract. In the process of the review, the review committee recommended to Harvard, not only was West fit for reappointment to this uh, term uh, position, but that uh, his position should be elevated to a tenured position at the university. And there was ample support for that. Robin uh, D.G. Kelly, Robin Kelly, the historian at UCLA, has a long piece in the Boston Review in which he says Cornell West is the greatest thing since sliced bread. By the way, when that committee wrote me asking for my opinion about his fitness for renewal for the term appointment, I wrote back the following letter and he publishes in the Boston Review in its Very entirety. Very unusual. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's his, rare his to show a letter like that. So Harvard is wrong to not grant Cornell West tenure when, as again, I understand the facts, he wasn't up for tenure. Rather, he was in a non-tenured position, which universities have, sometimes of very distinguished people, especially in professional schools. The Kennedy School of Government might bring in an ambassador or a former cabinet member as a professor of the practice of government. The business school might bring in a former entrepreneur or venture capitalist or manager as a professor of the practice of business administration. These positions need not and often are not tenured. I actually don't know the facts about Harvard's use of tenure in that kind of instance, but in my experience over 40 years in the academy, I have frequently seen people making valuable contributions at the university with very distinguished careers who are not themselves actually practicing scholars, but are embodiment of a kind of wisdom and knowledge that they've accumulated over the course of their working lives that is of great relevance to the mission of the business school, the school of government, the school of religion, the divinities, whatever. So Cornell was in a position of this kind, as I understand it. His routine renewal vetting became an opportunity to petition the university for his the elevation of his position to a tenured slot. The university, for reasons that they have not been willing, as far as I can tell, to say in public, uh, declined to do so. At least initially, they declined to do so. Cornell took umbrage and, and has left. Just before he announced publicly that he was leaving, on again, my reading of the newspaper, the university said, well, wait, we'll, we're willing to consider. It hadn't been our plan, but since you put it that way, we are willing to consider, but it's a process. We're willing to consider elevating your position to the thing. And by the way, tenure is a heavy lift. But if you just want a, more money, if you want a, a chair, if you want a whatever, we're, we're happy to make you as comfortable here as you could possibly be. But we hadn't been thinking about tenure for this slot. So if you insist, we're going to have to we're going to have to deliberate. But by that time, it was too late. Cornell had been offended. The story had gone viral. And those are the facts as I understand them. Please, again, correct anything that I said that was not accurate. All of that is um, sounds right to me. It goes beyond some of the things I knew because I don't know. I don't know the institution, but um, it's interesting. He um, people are made up of such different components in that, you know, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about the status. It wasn't about being celebrated or anything like that. It's just that he really wanted to have that tenure status given to him as a sign of respect it's funny about him he's um i have no problem with him i have no beef with him or anything like that but sometimes there's a contrast between the the street brotherly all of humanity identification that he puts out there which i'm sure is genuine and a real sensitivity about issues of acknowledgement like for example the how he apparently felt about not being invited to Obama's inauguration or not being invited in the right way. He was very upset about that. He felt that he was really owed a kind of a prominent place. If Michael Eric Dyson's account is correct, I'm assuming that it is. Yeah. And then here, you know, he's been tenured in other places and, you know, he's, um, I don't know. It's, <laughs> I know there's one anecdote where he, um, is making a proposal of marriage to a woman and he says okay. and 
I know that he means that in a kind of a performing vein. Like I'm not taking him at his word, but he's kind of, it's kind of a performance, but I guess there's a little bit about him where he really needs that acknowledgement. He's got to have that thing called tenure, even if he's gotten it from other places before. It just perplexes me a little bit. And I'm not saying that I'm not implying some ulterior motive, but at his age too, with all of the acclaim that he has and all that Harvard was preparing to shower him with, I just, I, I'm perplexed that it would matter that much to him. Now, talk about 20 years ago there. I think the facts were less pretty. I think that we were dealing with an uncomfortable distinction between academic work and being a public intellectual and Cornell didn't seem to be inclined to quite attend to the difference. But on this one, it's just that he feels dissed. And I'm not sure I completely understand how or why, but people are made of different things. That's what I find myself thinking with this one. I don't have tenure. I had it at Berkeley. I don't have it at Columbia, probably never will. Doesn't bother me. They're very nice to me and I am exactly where I want to be in life. I don't need somebody to give me tenure, but I'm trying to put myself into the head of him where he needs to have that imprimatur, maybe because he's older, maybe because he's closer to the end than I am or something. I don't know. I don't quite get why it's so important to him, but maybe he would have an explanation. You don't have tenure. That's a noteworthy uh, fact. Uh, you are uh, uh, regularly renewed for a period of a certain number of years in your appointment. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm going to assume that that's because and there's no, no slot in the linguistics department at uh, Columbia where your academic work would be properly there's vetted nobody. for the purpose of tenure. Yeah, there's, there's, there's nobody who would be able to evaluate, evaluate me. And to be perfectly honest... Yeah, I can put this out there. At this point, if I went up for tenure, there's so many people out there who think of me as so disgusting for my views that I think it would be hard for me to get tenure because it would be hard not to run up against those sorts of people. So I'm associate professor. I am paid quite properly. I do my job. I am told in good faith that I can keep doing it for as long as I would like to. And I hope that's true. And, you know, as far as honor... I mean, no. what I hear is and that so you're, one of, got... you're one of the most effective anyway. uh, instructors in the core curriculum uh, at Columbia. And, uh, they they rave about you, John. And, I, and I, I'm sure well, that I, your I colleagues appreciate. And moreover, your your output is stupendous, man. I mean, you're having an impact on the culture. Come on, you're, you're a valuable colleague. Everybody can see that value. Likewise, Cornell West is a valuable colleague. Everybody can see that value. Exactly. Uh, yeah. There was no way whatsoever that he wasn't going to have a position at Harvard for as long as he would have wanted to have it, whether or not it was a tenured position. He he can't possibly need it. Man, his Harvard salary has got to be a third or a tenth of his oh. annual income because the brother is, you know, he's Cornell West. Uh, his yeah. books, his books from 25 years ago are probably still selling, uh, you know, uh, a nice study honorary, uh, you know, uh, royalty-producing flow. Uh, I'm not trying to count my brother's money here, but I'm saying Cornell's okay. Uh, he's a national and an international celebrity. People bow down to him. So so that he w- was in a post at Harvard, which the university had set up as a renewable appointment, and where they hesitated to convert that into a tenured appointment sui generis for him. Hardly represents being disrespected by the university. I, that's 
and and has relatively minuscule material impact on his condition, his security, his well, his his uh, income flow, and whatnot. This is all about uh, status, respect, and honor. He wants Harvard to endorse his program, to endorse his project, to say of his project, this is a part of what's going on at Harvard that we affirm, that we embrace, that we uh, that it's us. This is us. He wants inner sanctum status. He wants to be John Dewey. I, I wouldn't be surprised if in an unguarded moment you get Cornell West talked about himself as if he were John Dewey. I mean, he is a John Dewey-like figure, and we could get into the books and whether or not he really is John Dewey, and I don't want to do that. I'm not doing that now. I'm just saying that's the game that he's playing in. He's he's playing in the, the game of cultural uh, analyst and critic of a profound impact on his generation, more profound than, I don't know, a Noam Chomsky or something like that. He, he thinks of himself as a prophet, literally a man whose faith and whose practice meld together in a world-shaping way. He sees himself as a tribune for the sufferers of the world, for the marginal, for those who don't have a voice. He believes that he's taking the tradition of Jesus and the tradition of Socrates, and he wouldn't be ashamed to say Socrates, although he wouldn't stop there. He'd bring it all the way up to the 20th century, but I'm talking about the Western canon. Okay, he 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 want to talk about the Goethe. He 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 want to talk about Chekhov. He he wanted, you know, I mean, he would. He's gonna have this very very broad intellectual engagement with the great questions of justice of our time, and he regards himself as working in that rarefied space of stratospheric intellect, where you read these books that are three hundred years old and you really grapple with them. You, you grapple with Hobbes, you grapple with Smith, you grapple with Marx, you grapple with Gramsci, you, you, you know, you, 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 you assimilate all of this and then, and then you practice it. You're on the front line. You're, you're galvanizing. You're giving voice to the, to, you know, this is what he thinks he's doing. He believes he's a prophet in our time and an intellectual of, of, uh, enormous, uh, heft. And so, to have Harvard say, no, we won't give you tenure, when in fact, they ought to be wanting to name a building after him. And I'm not saying this from his ego. I'm saying this from the point of view of his ambition, of, 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 of what it is that his project entails. Will we have peace? Militarism. He's against militarism. Will we have peace? Will we have justice? Will there be starvation? What about the, the, the migrants at our border begging for a place to be let in? And what about the Palestinians who are under the boot of Israeli occupation? He thinks he's speaking for all of them. He's speaking truth to power. That's what he thinks he's doing. It's not about the money, and it's not about whether or not he'll have a job next year, because he's fine. It's about whether or not Harvard wants to join at its hip with his project. And they evidently want to think about it. I just can't. As the kids say, I just can't even. All of that is well and good, but the idea that you must have the institution give you a certain formal imprimatur or you've been disrespected in such a way that you're going to sell your house. I, uh, mm, 
I try so hard to think like the other person, but I just, I, I can't do it. I would think that that person you just described would generate it all from the inside, from the people who are close to him. He's working his project. Dorothy Day was not asking for somebody to give her the Nobel Peace Prize. She was doing her work. I, I am clearly missing something. There's probably a race dynamic, something about what Harvard represents. I just can't get into that man's head on this one. You just depicted him brilliantly, but my version of that man just wouldn't care that much about this. And I guess it's just that I, um, I am arrogant in other ways. <laughs> I just, I don't get it. You I know, just don't of, get it. Maybe it's because I'm not that much into ceremony. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, know. I don't like to wear formal clothes. It's just, we're all made up differently. I, I just, why does it matter so much to him? But that's, that's his thing. Uh, it, you get it? I, I don't know if I get it or not, but I, I think I might get a little bit more of it than you do. Uh, I mean, you remember the cannon fights. In fact, were you at Stanford when there was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go? I was Jesse there Jackson during that went out time. there to whatever. Uh, I'm just on the heels of it. Yeah. It, it's it's a what's the canon? What's canonical? What is foundational? Um, so I, I actually, in preparation for this conversation, I went on uh, YouTube and I found a recent lecture that they had taped that Cornell had given. Uh, he was at Dartmouth. He was doing a visiting lecture. He's just a couple of years old. And he was uh, talking about Du Bois's uh, autobiography, Dusk of Dawn which I think is the first of three autobiographies that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote over the course of his life. And uh, he's got the book in his hand and he's prancing across the stage and he's engaging with this room full of uh, eager students. Uh, And he's talking about Du Bois and about the text and about the humanities. I can't reproduce the lecture, obviously. I wouldn't try. Uh, but it was compelling, uh, John. It was it was theat. It was it was a combination of things. It was erudition, without any doubt, not just about Du Bois, but about all of the foundation of Du Boisian learning. Because Du Bois had been trained in Germany, and and he was and he knew about Schiller, and you know, and and uh, West has this line where he says, "You got to read Schiller's plays." I I had never read. Them. I mean, I studied German when I was in college, but I don't know Schiller's plays. But he says, there's no Dostoevsky without Schiller. Okay, this is, this is a throwaway line. It's one of two dozen such. You, you might think it's showing off until you find out that it's reflexive and that he simply has read all these books. He simply thought about what was the influence of Schiller, who was influenced by Goethe, on Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, etc., and I'm saying, and this man is uh, a philosopher. He's a professor of religion. He's a guy, and and he's he's pleading with the students to see a point which I think is questionable, which is that if you can't hear the voice of the suffering in your midst, you're not in touch with reality, and there's no possibility of justice. It all starts with the voice of the suffering. Now, I think that that's disputable as an epistemological claim. I would like to see the argument for that. He didn't spell it out. But but that's the way, and, it's, and the kids, of course, are spellbound, and he's got these books. He's got the Library of America's Compendium of Du Bois's writing in one hand, and he's got this paperback 
of Dusk of Dawn in the other hand, and he's reading off. He says, wait a minute, let me show you this sentence. This is all in a 45-minute lecture, man. Let me show you this sentence. Let me show you that. His, his mastery, his embodiment, if you want to say, who would you have speak the voice of Du Bois in our time? Cornell West is a reasonable answer to that question. It's a reasonable answer. So he's, he's you know, uh, saying, I didn't ask for it, and I don't know whether he did or he didn't, actually. That's an important fact. Whether he sought it as an uh, affirmative thing or whether it simply came up through the committee review process confronting the university with a decision. And you got to recognize, man, they got tons of professors of the practice of who are on terms appointments at the Kennedy School and the business school and the School of Public Health or whatever. I don't know this for a fact, but I bet a lot. I, I mean, I know from the Kennedy School, I taught there for over a decade. They got tons of such people. Uh, around the university who do not have tenure track appointments because they are making a segmentation between a practitioner and a scholar. And whatever the merits of Cornell West as a scholar, the position that he was in was a professor of the practice. Now, if they allow a review committee to turn that into a tenured position, that's a slippery slope. The university definitely doesn't want to be standing on you. That will not be the last such case. The precedent established there would not be trivial. It would be significant in terms of uh, loss of control over the process of constituting and reconstituting the faculty. And there's nothing more significant in a university than deciding who are the faculty. So they might have, out of a concern for process, not been willing to do it. Without regard to the merits, I don't know this because they've been mum about the whole thing. I think we should, we shouldn't, I'll just say in brief, we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of deeply well-read PhDs in this country who haven't been fortunate, and especially in today's economy, which Cornell West was blessed to have missed by a couple generations, but in today's economy are you know, just stuck being adjuncts, jumping yeah. from school to school, who could hold the Library of America volume of Du Bois in their hand and have things underlined and could jump from student to student and explain to them why these things are important. And they know who Goethe and Schiller and Dostoevsky are, too. And no one's ever going to hear of them. They are very gifted teachers. They definitely will not have that magic. You cannot, you can't buy it, that stage presence of West. They don't, they're not going to have that. I know what you mean about what he's like in a room, but you're talking about him as gifted pedagogic artist. You're talking about him as a gifted teacher and a committed teacher. I've heard that he's a committed teacher too. But that alone is not what gets you tenure. And that's that's a whole different conversation. I'm not dissing what what he does, but I think the infrastructural things you're talking about carry great weight here. And the whole thing just surprises me. Glenn, the truth is I have to do a sound check for another thing. Okay. And I have John. to do it roughly now. And so I think we have to end at this we point. We indeed do have to end. This is Glenn Lowry with John McWhorter bi-weekly here at the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv and at patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show. We'll be back in two weeks and we will be posting responses to the question and answers that have been submitted at Patreon in a a matter of days. 
So hold on, everybody. We are here and we are paying attention. Thanks for listening.